Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Village Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Good morning, Vale Church. It's uh, good to be with you this morning and to uh, bring the message that the Lord laid on my heart. And um, we've had, uh, I've enjoyed the last Sunday we went uh, prayer walking and look forward to uh, this Sunday as well. So, uh, yeah, hopefully it's a good time and it's just good to be with everybody, see everybody again and just uh, connect again. So, and then to be in the community. It was just, we, I really enjoyed just walking the community and praying with people that were available. And, so look forward to that. So anyway, uh, yeah, look forward to continuing that and, uh, and see what God does. Um, but yeah, just um, it's good to be with you, as I said. This morning, my message is going to continue in the Rooted series uh, that we began uh, earlier this year. Um, and specifically, it's going to be with dealing with sin. Has anyone ever warned you that they what they saw in your life and the, the steps you're taking, the path you're taking, uh, if you continue on that path, they didn't see a good outcome for you. Has ever told you that this this didn't look good, uh, and they they warned you or encouraged you to change course. Um, and uh, in those situations, have you ever been the one to respond that uh, that you appreciate their concern, but uh, hey, you know I, I know what I'm doing uh, and what you think or predict. Uh, I don't think it'll happen to me because uh, I'm I, I know what I'm doing. I appreciate that. I thank you for that. Um, so uh, and you assured them that uh, what, what they thought or predicted would, wouldn't happen to you. Has that ever happened to you? When I was in high school, I really liked this one girl. She was a cheerleader and had all the boys drooling over her. And one day she showed interest in me and asked me to call her. Uh, I was uh, beside myself as I told my friend Jim about it. He, though, was not as excited, and he told me to take care because he didn't trust this girl. And he felt she was using me to get to another of my friends, whose name was Paul. I assured him I could handle myself with this girl, and while I appreciate his concern, that uh, I didn't think that would happen. Um, so when I did call her, and we talked for a while, she seemed to really enjoy the conversation. And then she asked me if my friend Paul had ever said anything about her. Not wanting to talk about Paul, for sure, I told her I could remember. And then she asked me in her sweetest voice if I, if I let her know if he did say something about her. I said, sure, and then I asked her out for the weekend. She was interested in going out. Uh, She put me off, and then she told me we'd talk about it later. So when I tried to call back or reach back out to her, she wouldn't answer. And uh, then I began to notice that she was ignoring me at school unless I was with Paul. It was true. I was being used. How could I let myself be used? As I reflected on this situation, I realized I had wanted to hear the truth from my friend Jim. I wanted to believe that she really did like me and that she wouldn't use me. When the truth was, she had no qualms in using me to get to my friend. And I wanted to believe that I was smart enough not to be used, when in reality, I was as foolish as the next hormone racing teenage boy. Can you relate? Have you been in situations like that before? Years ago, I was talking to my niece who was in college and she told me that uh, she met a young man and uh, he was really nice to her and she really enjoyed him and, and uh, he had asked her to move in with her, with him. Uh, and so she said that she's looking forward to that. And I got really quiet and she said, uh, uh, you don't think that's a good idea or what's wrong, why are you quiet? And I said, well, I, 
I'm, I'm concerned for you. I'm afraid for you. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I know I was a young, I know I was a young man. I'm a man. And uh, my concern is that uh, without him making a commitment to you in some way, uh, and just asking you to move in with him, that uh, when he gets what he wants from you, he won't be interested in you. She said, oh, no, no. And he's very different. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm glad you're concerned for him, but it won't happen that way because I'm sure that he, he's different. Well, in six months, sadly, uh, she moved out because he told her he, he no longer wanted uh, her to live with him. Uh, and so maybe you've had experiences like that in your life. And uh, so I want to look today at two of Jesus' disciples and how they responded to Jesus telling them what they would do uh, and, and how they responded to that. And uh, even more importantly, I want to look at uh, when they did do what he told them they would do, uh, and basically they sinned, how they responded to that sin, and then how that determined even how we remember them to this day. The story I want to look at is the story of Judas Iscariot and Peter. You know, near the end of Jesus' life, he was a marked man. The religious leaders had decided that he had to go. They were, and they were looking for a way to get rid of him. They tried to discredit him before the people, but the harder they tried, the more the people flocked to him. They tried to discredit his teachings, but his answers to all their questions only made them look less credible to the people. They tried to accuse him of not following the law, and he used the law to expose their hearts and their hypocrisy. They were afraid of not losing their place of power and authority, and they were willing to murder Jesus to protect themselves. Jesus knew this. He knew exactly what was happening. And in Matthew 16, 21, we read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so I want to look at uh, Matthew chapter 26. Into chapter 27, we'll read large portions of Matthew chapter 26. 27 to look at the story of Judas and Peter. We begin in Matthew 26 in the first few verses where Jesus again foretells his death and gives more specifics. And we read where the religious leaders are already working on the details of how to kill him. So Matthew 26, 1 to 5. If you have your Bibles or phones and want to read all with me, please feel free to do so. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Passover was the largest of the feasts and commemorated their uh, leaving Egypt and being liberated by uh, the Passover was when the death angel passed over their homes and killed the firstborn in all the Egyptian homes. And that uh, enabled them to leave Egypt. So it's a, a great time of remembering God's salvation for them as a nation. So that was coming. It was coming very soon. It says in verse two, verse three. It says, "Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they were planning, they were making plans, they were going to get get rid of Jesus as soon as possible. But they didn't want to do it during the Passover because they thought it would the people would not be accepting of that." So then the following verses we read, possibly the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, as we say, uh, in the life of Judas that pushed him to say, I need to make my move now and do what I'm going to do. So let's read that, Matthew 26, 6 through 13. If you have your Bibles, read along. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will, always not, well, you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now there's a similar event that happened, it seems from Scripture, a few days before this. And it really reveals uh, Judas's heart in, in all of this. Now I'd like to read that and kind of catch the, the essence of what is happening here in Judas' Judas's heart. Uh, in John chapter 12, verses 1-8, to we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for, for him there, and Martha, who was a, servant, who was a uh, sister of Lazarus, served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, Matt Lazarus' other sister, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was, he who was about to betray him, said, why, this why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself. He used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep, uh, keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And so in that story, Judas, it could have been Judas at this time was realizing that, uh, you know, uh, Jesus' time might be limited here because he saw what was happening, heard what was happening with the chief priest, saw how much they hated Jesus and was realizing maybe they're going to get rid of him soon. And so he decided, I need to make my next move after he was reprimanded or corrected by Jesus and, uh, you know, and, and realized that uh, he wouldn't be able to take, keep taking money from the, uh, from the treasury bag if he was keeping it if Jesus was no longer there. Uh, and so he might, he might realize Jesus' days were numbered and if he was going to get what he wanted before Jesus was gone, he'd have to take matters in his own hands. And so beginning in verse um, four, we skip down to 14, uh, and 14 through, um, uh, 14 through 16, we read this. Then one of his disciples, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So now the stage is set for Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And while in the Passover meal, or the Last Supper with his disciples, he foretells his betrayal. He identifies and says, this is what's going to happen. And Judas is obviously a large part of this. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, to, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the, of the other, Lord, is, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him, better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. 
So he told Joseph, yes, you have said so. You will do what you say. I'm, I'm telling you, you're on that path to do that. And so after the meal, Jesus took his disciples out to a garden where he could pray. And it was there that he told them they would all desert him and Peter would deny him. That's where he foretold what would happen with Peter. He told Jesus, one of you will betray me. And he said, it is as you said. Okay, and then Peter, this is what happens with Peter. In Matthew 26, 30 to 35. And when they had sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three, three times. So he said, Before the morning and through the night, in this night, even though you say you will never fall away, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Peter didn't want to hear the truth. He didn't want to hear what Jesus was telling him. He wanted to say, no, it'll be different. He may say this, but it's going to be different. And after Jesus prayed in the garden, the events happened exactly as Jesus told them. First Judas, Matthew 26, 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Jesus, Judas came, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once, saying, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So exactly as Jesus told what would happen, it happened. And then after that, of course, Peter. And we won't read the verses, but just after this it said, one of the ways when they seized Jesus, all the disciples ran and scattered. They were afraid for themselves, they ran. Uh, but Peter hung back a little bit. He wanted to see what happened. So begin reading in verse, uh, 20, verse uh, 57 of chapter 26. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. He stayed back, but he wanted to see what happened. As far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end, to see what would happen. And then in verses 69 through 74, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with the Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, just as Jesus had told him. Jesus told both Judas and Peter what, would, what they would do. Peter vehemently denied he had ever do such a thing. He even said he was willing to die with Jesus. But when the truth time came, he couldn't follow through. He denied ever knowing Jesus. Why do we deny the truth? Why do we think we'll never do certain things? I believe there are at least two reasons. First, we believe we're better or stronger than we are. 
And second, we don't understand our enemy. In 1987, a very well-known American pastor and author, uh, a Christian leader who had led some large Christian organizations, a man named Gordon McDonald, admitted to an adulterous affair with a lady he worked with. He resigned his position and went into counseling. Some years later, he was asked about his action and used the story of a young German pilot who it, also in 1987 landed a small airplane in Moscow near the Russian government in what they call Red Square, uh, in the, near the headquarters of the Russian government. And he used that illustration to explain how and why he committed his sin. I have to read you his explanation from his, in his own words, from his book, Rebuilding Your Broken World. Military experts say that the Russians have developed and positioned the most effective uh, anti-aircraft system in the world, in all the world. Powerful radars probe the air above the major Soviet cities and missiles are poised at any altitude. And none of the cities is more heavily defended uh, in that system, it is said, than Moscow, its famous Red Square, just outside the Kremlin, the seat of the communist government. And that explains why the world was shocked and a little more and a little more than, and more than a little amused when a young German piloted a small rented single-engine airplane from Denmark into the Soviet territory, buzzed the Kremlin before landing in Red Square. Before he was taken away by the police, he managed to greet some surprised Muscovites who just happened to be in the area at the time. He even signed a few autographs. And when the incident was over, the youthful German was elated. The Russian government, though, was embarrassed, and a couple of top generals were abruptly sacked, and the world laughed. Looking back in hindsight, we now know that the incident shook the old Soviet government to the core, demonstrating a level of military vulnerability that no one could have ever imagined. What happened that day made a significant contribution to the demise of the old Soviet Union and gave the world the Russia we have today. I thought about a city dumbfounded that its most powerful defenses were thwarted a city suddenly forced to brood upon its own vulnerability. After all, if an adolescent could land a plane in Red Square without being fired upon, what could a dedicated enemy bent on destruction accomplish? So he said they weren't looking for a small plane to fly under the radar. They were looking for a large plane with missiles and bombs to fly in. So they were ready for that. So they weren't prepared for this small plane to go in and they landed without any action taken against it. A few years ago, he continues to talk about himself and what happened to him with his lapse, with his sinful actions. A few years ago, I gave a speech at a college commencement. Before the festivities began, a member of that school's board sat with me in the president's office. We'd never met before, and we were asking questions of each other that might help us get better acquainted. Suddenly, my new friend asked a strange question. I've thought about that question many times since. He asked, if Satan were to blow you out of the water, how do you think he would do it? I'm not sure. I know, I answered, all sorts of ways, I suppose, but I know there's one way he wouldn't get me. What's that? He asked. He'd never get me in the area of my personal relationships. That's one place where I have no doubt that I'm as strong as you can get. A few years after that conversation, my world broke wide open. A chain of seemingly innocent choices became destructive, and it was my fault. 
choice by choice by choice, each easier to make, each becoming gradually darker. And then my world broke in the very area I had predicted I was safe. My world, my world had to be rebuilt. He, like Peter, said, no, it'll never happen. In this area of personal relationships, it'll never happen. I'm strong there. And we, like Mr. McDonald, can falsely and foolishly believe we are stronger than we are. We can think we have strength within ourselves to withstand the temptations of the devil. If we think that way, we, like Mr. McDonald, will find ourselves broken by our sins. In 1 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy, we're told to flee from sexual immorality, idolatry, and youthful passions. We're told to flee when the devil comes around. And in James chapter 4, 7, we're told, submit yourselves to God, therefore, therefore to God, and resist the devil. He will flee from you. He will flee from you. So it says, you know, don't fight him. Don't, 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 don't engage him. Uh, resist him. We are told to flee from him or resist him. Only once in Scripture are we told to engage the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Only in the whole armor of the Lord is your strength. But in, again in verse 14 it says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt, belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Our strength to withstand any temptation from Satan comes only from and through Christ. We are not as strong in ourselves. We, even though we fully say anybody think so, we're not. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13, it tells us, Therefore, let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It sounds like Mr. McDonald when he said, I know an area he'll never, you know, I'll never fall. In personal ways, he thought he stood and he should have taken heed because he fell. And it goes on and says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So don't think you can stand against the devil. And when the devil comes at you with temptations, know that God will provide a way for you. It will be him leading you. And in his power, you can overcome the devil and temptations. As the Russians never imagined anyone attempting, much less landing a small plane near their capital, Mr. McDonald never thought he was vulnerable to Satan's temptations in the area of personal relationships. Therefore, he thought Satan wouldn't even bother to tempt him in that area. He was proud of his strength. He didn't realize that Satan will use our pride against us. In the Proverbs 16, 18, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Revelations 12, 9, our enemy is described this way, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's his mission, to deceive the whole world. And Satan will use any means necessary to carry out his mission, to tempt us and bring us down. He will even use our own heart. It's interesting as Jeremiah 17, 9 describes our heart this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can stand against it? So Satan is the deceiver. Our heart is the, is the deceiver of the whole world. Our heart is deceitful above all things. That seems like a match almost made for each other. And Satan doesn't play. His goal is the destruction of everything that God has made. Everything godly. He is the, he was the destroyer. In John 10, 10, he tells us the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's his mission, to 
kill, to steal, and destroy. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is constantly on the lookout who he's going to devour, who he's going to destroy. That's his mission. And so we need to be aware of Satan's schemes and what he will use against us. And then we need to know that within ourselves, we are no match for him. Even though Peter said, I will never deny you, he denied him. Even though maybe in my life I've said things, sometimes I've said, I will not do that. I found myself doing it because I'm no match. The devil and his schemes are such that he can trap me. And even though Mr. McDonald said, I will never fall into air personal relationships, that's exactly where he fell because Satan is a schemer and a deceiver. And we cannot stand against him. So continuing with the story, I'd like, now, now I'd like to look at what happened after Judas and Peter sinned. After they did what Jesus told them they would do, they did. I'd like to see what, what did they do when they sinned. And this is the essence of my sermon this morning. So in Matthew 26, 75 through 27, chapter 12, verse 5, let's read. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. After he had denied Jesus three times, this is where it picks up him. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Continuing on in the chapter 27, when morning came and all the chief priests and elders of the law, the council took, uh, people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Take care of it yourself. Well, they didn't care. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went out and hanged himself. Peter's denial is recorded, of Jesus is recorded in all four gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's recorded that Peter wept over his denial. When it happened and he, the, the rooster crowed, he wept, he went out and wept bitterly, it says. He was broken by his sin. In John 21, though, it says, we read where Jesus restores Peter to ministry. Jesus met with him and restored him to ministry. And he told him, feed my sheep. I have a plan for you. I want to, you to be useful in, what, in my plan. So we can see Peter responded to his sin by turning to God, repenting and allowing Jesus to restore him. Judas, on the other hand, he felt remorse for his actions, and he tried to make things right, it seems. He confessed to the chief priests and elders, but we don't read where, we, where he ever turned to God. And when his efforts failed, we don't read where he repented and went to Jesus and allowed Jesus to restore him. Over, overcome with guilt and not knowing what to do, he took his own life. And it's interesting, Peter is known today as a leader in the first church and the one who gave the first sermon in the book of Acts. And many men through the ages have carried his name. Judas, though, is still known today as the betrayer of Jesus. And I've never heard of anyone named after him. Both Peter and Judas sinned. The difference is how they responded to their sin. And we know today that we also sin. 
The question is how will we deal? How will we respond to our sin? We know that sin brings death. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, and all men have sinned. We also know Jesus accepted our wages for our sins by dying for us on the cross. He took the punishment for our sins and gave us his righteousness in life. Romans 5, 8 and 9 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God died, or Jesus died for us. Romans 5, 21 says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death, but grace leads in, reigns in righteousness because of what Jesus has done for us. And then in Romans 6.23, as we read before, for the wage of sin is death, it continues on. It doesn't stop there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we, when we sin, turn to Jesus, repent of our sins and accept his death as payment for our sin and receive his gift of life. He welcomes us into his family. When we come to that point of realizing, yes, we have sinned and we can turn to Jesus, he will forgive us. He will welcome us into his family. We will receive his gift of life. In John 1, 12, it says, but to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Being rooted in Christ means being sure of these truths for us who, who believe, who have made that decision to accept his free gift of life, who've turned to him from our sinful ways and believed in him. To those of us who have done that, this it means being sure of the truths that come from that. If you've never done that, if you never turned to Jesus uh, for your sins in your life, and you're still trying to do it as your own, as, as Judas did, realize you will never be able to undo what you've done in your life. Only Jesus can restore you. Only Jesus can make you right with God. But when you've done that, then being rooted in Christ means being sure of these truths and resting in them and living by them. It means experiencing Romans 8, 1 daily, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even if we sin, and we will sin after we've come to know Jesus in our lives and believed in him, we will sin, but it says even after. There are no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means living also in the truth of Romans 8, 38 and 39, where the, Paul writes, For I am sure there neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor any things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even if we sin, it will, it will separate us from God. Before, because of our sin, before we knew Christ, before we came to him, turned to him, we were separated. But now that we have a relationship with him, nothing will separate us from him. Nothing will condemn us. When we ascend as believers in Christ, it doesn't nullify these truths. It means that we are not experiencing these truths because sin enters our fellowship and our experience of God as our Father. It doesn't change the truths that we'll never be condemned and we'll never be separated but it does keep us from experiencing it because our sin separates or helps us, uh, uh, hinders our fellowship with him, not our relationship. 
our sin as believers doesn't condemn us or separate us from God. It keeps us from enjoying and experience, experiencing the life He has for us. We are still God's children, we're just not experiencing it. Sin in the life of the believer breaks his or his fellowship with God and prevents him or her from experiencing all that God has for us. His power, joy, peace, and love. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The only way to experience this abundant life from Jesus is to deal with our sin. To restore our fellowship and continue experiencing God as our Father and enjoy all, and enjoy all He has for us, we need to apply 1 John 1, 8 and 9, where it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. So I can't say I have no sin. I know. I know myself. I know what I do. I know what I think and the actions I take. So I can't say. If I do, I, I know I'm not saying the truth. The truth is not within me. But he goes on to say in verse 9, But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to confess our sins is to agree with God. Not to try to justify it or rationalize our sins, but to agree with God. Yes, I've sinned when he showed me I've sinned. And to thank him for the truth that he has forgiven me of all my sins based on the truth of his word, Jesus' death on the cross. And then turn to him from our sins and live our lives for him. Confession is what is needed when I realize that I've sinned. I can not try to make my sin right as Jesus did or try to fix it in my own effort, but just trusting Jesus, agreeing with him that I've sinned, thanking him that he's forgiven me and that the truths of his word are still true about me and turn him away from my sin. Like Judas and Peter, we all sin. And like Judas and Peter, we decide how we will deal with our, how we'll deal with our sin. Like Peter, we can live rooted in Christ by confessing our sin and experiencing the life God has for us. Or like Judas, we can deal with our sin in our own way and experience a life void of God's power, love, peace, and joy. And just as with Peter and Judas, the choice was theirs, the choice is ours today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, uh, this, what you've given us in your word, that uh, there is still hope for us. There will always be hope in Christ for us. And, and Father, as we uh, come to know you and we confess our sins and we experience your forgiveness and, and become part of your family, we rejoice in that, that you want us to be part of your family. You want us, you, you died to, that we might become part of your family. We, we thank you for that. And, and then but even be a part of your family when we do things that are, are sinful, Father, we don't have to live in that. We can turn to you again, as Peter did. And we can, you can restore us uh, to that relationship by confession. As I pray for all of those who are listening to me today that uh, if we've never come to that point of accepting you as our Lord and our Savior and, and believing in you, we'll do that today. We'll do that. We'll see our need of our Savior and not, not be like Judas and try to make it on our own. Um, and I, believe, I pray for those of us who do know you. And we, when you, by your, by your power of your spirit, live with us, show us our sin that we do, that we'll be quick to confess it, uh, to agree with you this sin, to thank you that you've forgiven it, and to turn to you for the power to live the way you want us to live. So thank you, Father, there's a message this morning. That I pray that uh, we'll take this to heart and we'll live lives that bring glory to you by being rooted in you 
and dealing with our sins through confession. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.